Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Analemma Coherent Water, a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Analemma has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. It significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy, a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Joanna Sadler. She's a chancellor's fellow at University of Edinburgh. She had a, well, she obtained a, an MS master's in chemistry from the University of Bristol in 2013, and then a PhD in biocatalysis and organic chemistry part of the University of Strathclyde in 2017 in this happened. And then she had postdoctoral positions at University of Manchester, University of St. Andrews. We're going to talk today about uh, her work with plastic degradation and what's called upcycling and the role of fungus and bacteria, hopefully to eat and plastic waste. So, Joanna, thank you for coming. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. If you would, tell me a bit about your previous research and how it led in this direction to what you're doing now. Absolutely. So, as you mentioned in the introduction, I have a background in chemistry. So I've always thought about science from quite a sort of chemical perspective. And in particular, I'm very interested in ways that we can make industrial chemicals in a more sustainable way. So it turns out that about 12% of all petrochemicals, fossil fuel resources, so oil and gas, namely, actually goes into chemical manufacture. And quite often this is through quite um, unsustainable um, practices. So you know, harsh conditions and sustainable catalysts and solvents. Um, so a long-standing interest of mine, which really started in my undergraduate degree, is how can we make um, industrially important chemicals more sustainably? So I used to come at this from a chemical perspective, and during my undergraduate degree, I did a year in a process chemistry department of a pharmaceutical company, and that got me thinking about this problem. And then I got involved in working in biocatalysis as part of my PhD, and I opened my eyes to this huge and growing field of, of biocatalysis and actually also synthetic biology. So this idea that we can actually harness the inherent sustainable chemistry properties of microorganisms and build de novo pathways um, to actually make chemicals sustainably at room temperature from bio-based materials um, in a very selective manner. And this was an extremely exciting prospect for me. And so I then went about a sort of trying to equip myself with the skills that I would need to actually pursue an independent career in this field. And that's what I did with my postdoctoral research. 
And um, and then I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to start my own independent research, really pioneering this field of uh, taking waste and upcycling new chemicals. Well, so you were field of creating chemicals from biological processes, and now you're in the field of breaking them down and reusing them. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I guess so. That's one way you could think about it. I think I, I think of myself as I used to be in the field of making molecules from some other chemicals, so turning one chemical into another. And now I think of it as those chemicals now deriving from sort of post-consumer waste feedstocks. So I'm still turning one molecule into another molecule, essentially, but it just so happens that those starter molecules are now big polymer chains. We've got to first degrade them as well. Well, what kind of chemicals did you use to produce from biological processes? What's some examples of your previous research? So my PhD research was very much focused around the enzyme which is involved in the final biosynthetic step of an antibiotic. So an antibiotic called novobiosin, which is made by streptomyces. And I was very interested in how this carbon-carbon bond was being formed. So I was basically making sort of antibiotic-like molecules using bicatalysis um, from starting materials that I had chemically synthesized from sort of commercially available building blocks. Um, so, and that, that was to really study the enzyme and to think, what, can we understand the enzyme and then can we perhaps engineer it so that it could accept other substrates so you can start to diversify the kind of carbon-carbon bonds that you can build, which makes it, you know, it helps it be a more useful tool in synthetic chemistry that could be applied to a wider range of molecules. Okay, so what, what kind of compounds did you create and again, what processes? Do you have an example of one? Was there a, you know, a bacteria that helped you make a different one? I mean, what? We'll- what are some details of the process that you can give without going too deep? Of the of my PhD work? Yeah, maybe just like a quick a quick snippet of um, you said you were able to synthesize one last yes, molecule in a chain of, of an antibiotic. Yes, so, the, the antibiotic was novobiosin. Um, and we synthesized so it's one chemical step removed from novobiosin. So novobiosin is a coumarin, right, which has got a methyl group at the seven position, and we we synthesized that methylated coumarin ring. Um, but the final antibiotic actually has an additional sugar motif on it. Um, we didn't do that final step. The point wasn't really making the antibiotic. The point of this was to study the enzyme which does this key methylation step. Okay, okay, gotcha. So we mentioned upcycling. Uh, I know people are familiar with recycling, but what is upcycling, just in case people don't know? Yeah, and um, so upcycling is the idea of taking post-consumer product, and whereas recycling will be repurposing it into something of roughly equal value to the uh, first-generation material, Upcycling is the idea of transforming it into something of higher value than the than the original material. So in the case of what we studied, we were interested in upcycling waste PET, which is actually not very valuable. I mean, PET can be recycled, but the products tend to be of a lower quality and therefore lower value than the first generation material. So it's actually quite difficult to get something that has a higher value than the, the product, than the okay. um, material. Right, and PET is polyethyl terphthalate. It's a common plastic, is that right? That's that. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Okay. So usually it can't be upcycled or even recycled. It gets downcycled. Is that what you're saying? That's right. So quite often it's incorporated into, for example, um, or it is recycled into second generation pet materials. So a lot of, in, in the UK, a lot of milk bottles are actually made from recycled pet. And um, it's, it's a lower quality material. It has slightly less advantageous properties in terms of you know gas um, permeability and um, melting temperature, etc. percentage crystallinity. But it is still a useful material for some applications. For the number of applications, it can be used to the virgin polymer, which is a, a higher quality material. So what I was interested in doing is saying, okay, instead of turning it into something that is less useful and less valuable, 
um, can we actually turn it into something that is more valuable than the um, certain material? And that's what we um, did, we converted it into phenylum. Well, how do you do that? Why were you able to do that? Most people can't. What, what process did you use? So what we did was we engineered an E. coli to express um, a series of enzymes which would chemically tra transform the degradation product of PET into vanillin. So first we had to um, degrade the polymer chain. So to do this, we used an enzyme, which is a leaf branch compost ketonase. And this is an engineered variant of a naturally occurring ketonase, which is able to hydrolyze polymer and specifically PET chains. And so this operated at a degrees. So but we first treated the, the polymer with this enzyme at 70 degrees. This releases terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol as the two major degradation products. And we were particularly interested in the terephthalic acid. So what we did is we had a series of enzymes which could first convert that terephthalic acid into a key intermediate, which is called protocatechoic acid, or protocatechoic, or PC for short. And then another enzyme which would methylate that PC into vanillic acid, and then finally, an enzyme which would reduce the vanillic acid into vanillin, which is an aldehyde. So we had a series of reactions starting through terephthalic acid, eventually getting through to vanillin. vanillin. And what we did was we expressed all of these enzymes simultaneously inside a single E. coli cell. And this E. coli cell had previously been engineered to accumulate these aromatic aldehydes. So most E. coli actually natively expresses enzymes which would reduce aldehyde bonds. And so if we'd done it in most E. coli strains, we would have got phenyl alcohol, which is to reduce aldehyde. What we wanted to do was to accumulate the aldehyde. So we used a strain which had reductases knocked out. And indeed, we were able to get the aldehyde. We didn't detect any of the alcohol. Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Analemma Coherent Water, a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Analemma has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. This significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy, a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. Is this a scalable process or is it more bench scale right now? Like, What would it need to uh, be able to scale up large? Scale. We were getting reasonable but so detectable but fairly low on industrial scales titers so we were getting less than one millimole of vanillin produced when we did this so before we scale up we're doing a lot of optimization work to try and increase the titer that we are getting and uh, we're doing that in collaboration with an industrial partner so you bring in more chemical engineering people to scale it up from the bench but your your bailiwick is uh getting the bench process working is that right that's exactly right. I think before we before we start thinking about scaling up, we really need to get those titers up well above one minimum, which is where we are currently, to something approaching grams per litre. And once we're at that level, then we could start thinking about scale and that we are investigating. Sure. But the moment we do more synthetic biology and bioengineering to really um, improve this strain as much as possible. Right. What, what would this look like if it successfully scaled up? What do you imagine it would be? 
I can imagine a process where we have waste streams coming from either industrial or um, household waste, which contains PET. I don't know about in the US, but in the UK, we've already got quite efficient systems for sorting plastic waste, and in particular, pet waste is quite easily recoverable. So we know that PET can be quite efficiently hydrolyzed using just sodium hydroxide into terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol. Um, so we could use a chemical or an enzymatic process to um, depolymerize it into terephthalic acid. And so we're going to be in a situation where we have large volumes of terephthalic acid. This would be the input into a bioreactor. We would have a microbial process and at that point we would need to do tangent processing which I envisage being some sort of extraction into organic solvent uh, which which would give us our final product. It's worth noting that vanillin is actually the most hydrophobic part of this pathway so it provides an inherently quite a nice way to separate it from the other molecules because it is more hydrophobic. You can make the most of that in your um, extraction processes and selectively extract it over any other sort of unwanted intermediates. I mean, if you don't have a clean sheet stock, though, you know, if you have, let's say, I don't know, in bottles and has plasticizers and hundreds of other ancillary chemicals, how are you supposed to do this on the I mean, how are you supposed to work with a feedstock that's like unbelievably complicated chemically? I mean, you say unbelievably complicated. You're quite right. There are other molecules in there, so there's pesticides and colorants, etc. By mass, the vast, vast majority will be terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol because the other molecules are there in much, much, much lower levels than the terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol. What we need to do as part of the development process is characterize the effect of those other molecules, such so pesticides, etc. We need to characterize the effect of those on the strain. But at the moment, we haven't observed any sort of adverse reactivity. And I believe that they're there in, in very, very low levels. So I don't think that it will cause a problem to the process. And it will just be a case of having to purify the, the, the product at the end. But any chemical process, you have impurities, right? Is it, this, is, this is something that has been the case in chemical processes for, for many decades. You have a major product and then you have a series of minor products which you have to purify away from. Um, and so doing that as part of a bioprocess, that it we think is very different from doing it from a chemical process, which is already a very well-established process at scale for many chemical compounds, including vanillin. Yeah, but these, this is an engineered process and these bacteria are not used to, you know, the feedstock they're getting. I mean, if they have a natural feedstock, yes, I'm sure there's a lot of ancillary chemicals, organic acids, things like that. But in a man-made construct like this, with again, potentially thousands of different man-made chemicals put in there, not for you know, let's say evolutionary success, but just put in there for other reasons, you know, plasticizers, colorizers, you've seen no problems with the bacteria being affected. I'm just surprised happily. But well, not not yet. I mean, it's it's not something we've studied in great detail, but, you know, the process works and we have already seen since publishing our paper, we've already seen ways in which we can increase the titers. So, so, you know, these things aren't stop. They're not shutting the process down and we still see that there's room for improvement. So I really, at, at the moment, I'm quite optimistic that they, they won't cause, um, you know, like a no-go bottleneck for us. Um, and I really do believe that they are not present in sufficient quantities to, to cause a significant issue for us. And I, I think they will just be purified out at the end of the process and downstream processing. Well, when are you going to be in a testing phase for that? Where you're going to take, let's say... Okay plastic bottles that have the labels on them and things like that. But I don't know if you'd have to strip the labels off. Um, um, that that is the happening. Yeah, I think we would strip the labels off. So you'd probably have to strip the labels yeah. off, maybe yeah. take the caps off. Maybe the cap is a different plastic. Yeah, but as, as well as plastic bottles, there are also many other industrial um, waste streams, which are predominantly pets that we have identified as well. So plastic bottles is one of them, but um, 
any pet is quite ubiquitous across a lot of industries um, and some forms are purer than others. And we are collaborating with a number of partners at the moment to look at some of those different waste streams. Unfortunately, I can't give you all details on that, but um, there are many sources of pet which are in quite a clean form, um, which we can investigate and we are actively investigating. But what are some of the largest volumes of, of pet? You know, are they bottles or are they some other product? Like, can you say that? Um, by volume, I think it probably is plastic bottles uh, or food packaging, at least, uh, which encompasses plastic bottles, but also other food packaging, say so, you know, biscuit trays and fruit trays and, and things like this. That's all pet. And by volume, that is the largest. But um, it's also it's it's a compromise between not just the largest thing of pet, but also the, the, the most easy to process. And there are very large volumes of pet being produced from industrial processes, which are very clean and would be very well suited to this process. So if we look at how much vanilla we actually need to produce to meet global demand, that might be achievable with not perhaps the largest waste stream, but an accessible and clean waste stream that we have access to. That's good. So if you need to, you can pick and choose and pick a cleaner stream that that is more likely to work right off the bat. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Would it be a, um, a waste stream that's literally about to be released from a plastic plant, or would it happen right at the plant, or would it happen later on when... You know, some of these materials are in product form and they're gathered up and then recycled. Yeah, I think, it, it, I mean, a couple of examples that I'm thinking of, it's very much, you know, one industrial process happens and then as a byproduct of that, we have a lot of pet left over. And at that point, they've literally, literally at the moment, it's going to landfill. It's just being buried. And, and at that point, you can just divert it away from that landfill direction and put it into this process. So there's there's a lot of opportunity. But I think what needs to happen now, not just in my own work, but in this field more generally, is industry needs to, to be very open about what waste streams that they have so that people such as myself and other academics and industries working in the field of upcycling can find the opportunities and, and really you know, make the most of these technologies to actually have real world impact. Is there a problem there? You know, if, if someone gets a pet and they make it into product A and someone makes it into product B, I mean, at that point, it would be essentially a proprietary process, maybe, for that plant. And then if you go in there and you want to handle their uh, their material they normally throw away, would they say to you, well, it's already been processed in a proprietary way, so we need you to sign a non-disclosure, and you know, we can't make this a public process, you can only do it for us. Would you run into that issue? It's not an issue we've come up against so far. So the companies that we've interacted with so far have been just very enthusiastic for us to do something with a waste stream, because... A lot of companies have quite ambitious sustainability goals um, and they have quite a strong vested interest in cooperating with, you know, people who have these kind of enabling technologies to, to really improve their sustainability metrics. So most of the companies that we've interacted with have, have been very um, keen for us to take their waste streams and do something useful with them. Okay, that's good. So you use the coli for one. What other, uh, you know, fungi or bacteria or other creatures are you looking to use for other processes? At the moment, all of our work has been in E. coli, and this is because it is, it's very easy to work with. It's quick to grow. It's very genetically tractable. It's a system that we've worked with a lot. We're quite familiar with it, so we can generate these pathways pretty quickly. Having said that, in the future, we are looking towards uh, moving into Pseudomonas, for example, Pseudomonas putida. And this is quite well established within the field. So some other groups across the world have, have demonstrated upcycling of pet using Pseudomonas strains. And in comparison to E. coli, they can withstand higher concentrations of things like organic solvents and actually vanillin itself as well. So they are more tolerant towards vanillin, which is, is actually a microbial, antimicrobial agent. Um, 
so we are, we are interested in looking towards pseudomonas. Um, I'm also aware of some groups who are interested in using, for example, Iginella sacchiensis, which is the strain which makes pates, this famous enzyme which degrades plastic. And we are interested in seeing whether we can integrate that with our strain to have a sort of co-culture type situation where you would be simultaneously degrading and upcycling the plastic. So what are some of the considerations when you're choosing the, uh, the chassis or the organism that you're going to modify? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, first thing I would think about is the chemical compatibility. So I mentioned at the very beginning that we had to choose a strain which wouldn't reduce the vanillin to the alcohol. And that's because um, a lot of um, a lot of strains and microbes have these reductases, which are quite promiscuous and will just reduce a lot of aldehydes. And that's an anti-toxicity measure because aldehydes are toxic. So these reductases are kind of a survival technique. So one of the first things I think is, is my product going to be stable in this strain? And how much engineering would I have to do to make the strain compatible with the product that I want to make? And another thing is thinking, okay, if I've done that, how toxic are the chemicals I want to use? How toxic are they to the strain? So another advantage of Pseudomonas is that it is much more tolerant. You can have much higher levels of these chemicals. So that makes it really attractive. The other thing you might want to think about is, are they safe to use? So if we're starting to think about scalable industrial processes, these microbes safe to use at scale? Um, are we going to have to do, you know, crazy risk assessments or are they actually generally regarded as safe? So we tend to work with strains which are quite well established in biotech and are not going to cause any sort of safety concerns at all. And the other thing is the rate of growth. So we want something which which can grow fairly quickly, is pretty metabolically active and, and quite easy to handle and quite reliable. And again, Pseudomonas petida and an E. coli tick all of those boxes. And so they are very, very popular for those reasons. But once you get a process going, do you have to run it forever? continuously or you know i guess you don't do batch processes or if you do do all the e coli die and then they get cultured again like how does this actually work in practice there's loads of different ways that you can do it a common process is to do batch yeah so that you would have the, the way that we initially did it was in batch using resuspended cells so we actually first expressed all these enzymes in a cell so we had a, a rich broth full of cells we then sort of uh, centrifuged it so we just get the cell pellet and we resuspended that to a very high optical density so a lot of cells in a smaller volume and use that as our biocatalyst and that was a batch process and then at the end of it you extract out your product and you get a, a better thing for a scalable industrial process probably would be something that's a bit more like a fermentation and you can have a continuous feeding of fermentations as well. And from this way, you can really accumulate quite high titers. This works quite well if you have some in situ product removal as well, because again, as I mentioned, vanillin is toxic. So if you can be removing vanillin as you're making it, you're going to enable higher overall yields because you're alleviating this toxicity as it's made. So we actually showed in our work that if you add in um, some solvent overlays, you can selectively accumulate vanillin in the solvent overlay and actually get a higher titer. So I think for a continuous process, that would be a very good option. Um, and then it's also easier for downstream processing because your your product is already in a different phase, which is then easy to separate from your cells. Well, do you think you can do a continuous process? Would new E. coli continually be born and other ones dying in the mixture? And how would you, you know, would they create toxic byproducts or what would happen when the E. coli die? Yeah, significant numbers in the mixture. Yeah, it can't be continuous forever. It would be a you know, we, we'd have to do studies to, to find out the optimum running time for such a process. It wouldn't, you know, be continuously growing because you're right, a lot of the E. coli would, would eventually die and you would have a lot of redundant cell matter. But I think you could have a process which was running certainly for days, I think it would be sensible in the first instance, um, to try and accumulate as much product as possible. But what do you do with the, uh, the, the waste material, the unconverted product? 
and the dead E. coli and whatever detritus that accumulates of any what do you do with that? At the moment, we don't have a we don't have a solution for that. This is at a very early stage. This work, um, I would love to eventually have some kind of system where we can treat that with something, and it, it could become a feedstock because cell debris it's a very rich and um, carbon rich medium, right? And I think there has been some initial thought as to whether that itself, you know, if you were to hydrolyze it and kill it and lyophilize it, could that actually then be used as as some sort of growth media? I would love to have time to study that, and it's very much on the list. But at the moment, we do just sadly decontaminate and dispose of the waste cell material. Where does it go? Like, what happens to it? It gets incinerated, I think, eventually. But that, that's the academic scale. I don't know about industrial scale what happens to it. Uh, how close are you to uh, to getting a pilot, you know, process going in a particular plant? We're we're still quite a long way off, if I'm honest. And um, as I said. We're very much at laboratory scale. I mean, like just a few milliliters at the moment. And there's a lot of strain engineering that we want to do first before we start thinking about scaling up. So I think you know, we're quite a few years off, you know, of, of scaling up at the moment. Well, if you're doing, let's say you do something successful at the laboratory level, the bench scale level, you know, you're optimizing the strains that are to, to whatever point you want to get the right titers, as you said. But then when you go to scale it up, they're over-optimized, let's say. Or there's other factors now that you have a huge mass of material that creates, let's say, pockets of toxicity in the reactor. How are you going to account for that? Like, how do you know that you can scale up to the large process? And I would guess you need to go back we and forth, back and forth, right? Yeah, we don't know. And that's why you scale up gradually. We, we, we wouldn't go to straight to a 100-liter reactor vessel. You know, you go up incrementally, say we'd go to 5 liters and then um, 20 liters or, you know, going that in, in small steps. And hopefully in doing that, we would see these problems along the way. And at that point, it's easier to go back down a level and do further so tweaks to your process so that you don't yet yeah, jump up to a huge process and then find those are problems. Um, because, you know, things do change when you scale up. And we would um, okay. do that in collaboration with you know, scale-up facilities that we have in Scotland. And they have a lot of expertise to help academics transition these kind of projects. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know that how the scale-up process works. You go slightly larger, slightly larger. Until you get to where you need to go. So, um, I don't know, just as a guess, how many steps on average would there be from the bench scale to uh, industrial scale? Um, steps in terms of different size cultures? Yeah, right. Scaling steps. Like, what, what would be your guess on, on how many stages or steps there would be to get to the um, industrial size? I mean, I guess it depends what your industrial size is. I would imagine somewhere between eight and 10. That would be a very rough right. estimate. Um, it sounds like that's um, I don't know what that would probably be on the I guess the chemical engineering side of the of the equation. Yes. They would be more experts in that. I just wonder. I have no idea I I, to know something like that. Kind of saying I used to actually work in a process chemistry department, so I've kind of seen this from the chemical perspective, but I've not seen it from the biotechnological side. So I don't know whether that's a sensible estimate from a biotechnological standpoint. And I would certainly. You know, I think there's a big leap between going, you know, even if you're in a 50 litre fermenter, that's very different. Some of these huge pilot buttons that you see. Um, and it would do very much depend on what our end goal was and the kind of scale at which we want to, to produce this plastic derived vanillin. It's, it's quite interesting because vanillin is a consumer product. It goes into a lot of um, consumer things. There needs to be a consumer market for it as well for, it, for the scale up to be economically feasible. And so something that we're looking at at the moment is is whether there is space in the market for something like this that it's just derived from plastic because there's a lot of 
consumer concern, I think, over the, the concept of something being plastic derived. Um, because I think there is a sort of lack of appreciation for the fact that once you have produced a molecule, it is actually chemically indistinguishable. No matter where it's from, it's the same molecule. But the consumer still has this idea of something being natural and therefore that's better. Um, and so I think before we start making this stuff on like, you know, multi, multi, 10 scale, we actually need to establish what is the consumer demand and then tailor the production scale to that demand. Yeah, that makes sense. I imagine you in the future, you're on the, the cover of a magazine and you've got like your arm around this big reactor and you're proudly displaying it that you've scaled it up to this, this huge thing, you know. I hope that's the future for you. I mean, if the process works. I hope so too. That sounds very fun. <laughs> well, excellent. Um, so, Joanna, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and keep tabs? Where can they go to see what you're doing? Yeah, so you can check out our Twitter at, at JoeSadler10, and there's also at Sadler Lab, which is our Twitter. I have a website, sadlerlab.github.io, uh, which we keep trying to keep up to date. I also have uh, pages on the University of Edinburgh website as well. Watch your space because we're actively developing new pathways now and new enzymes to, to do things with plastic waste. So it's a really exciting time for our lab. I'm really excited to see where our research goes in the next five years. Okay. And the last question, Sadler is S-A-D-L-E-R? That's right, yes. Okay. I'm going to make sure for listeners. Well, Joanna, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Analemma Coherent Water a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Analemma has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. This significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy, a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma Water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.